message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruin. Grab your Bible. 1 John chapter 1. We're back in 1 John. Amen? It's good. One thing I know about any encounter that humans have had with the eternal God is that never do you find someone in God's presence faking it. Never do you find someone who encounters God in, in Old or New Testament face to face and they lie. It's an impossibility. When you come face to face with God, you've got to fess up and you've got to tell the truth. John, John knew this and he, he lived it. 1 John chapter 1, let's pick back up our series in verse 5. John says this, The message, the message we have heard from him and announced to you is this, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness, nowhere to hide. Nothing to be put in a shadow to be kept safe from God's visibility. All things are laid out in the open in the light. When there is no darkness, there's nowhere, <laughs> there's nowhere to go that the light isn't shining on you. And in fact, the message that John wants, wants his readers to hear, and at the end of this passage he'll even call you and I his children, which is, which is important, I think, that we, the children, know that the message that they have heard from Him, capital H, and that they announced to us is that God is light. It's part of His very character. It's part of His very being. If you were to define God, you have to define Him as there is no darkness in Him. There's no shadows. There's no place to run or hide from Him. You, you can't get away. Not only that, but it, it means that He has nothing to hide. And he's completely holy and he's completely righteous and he's completely just and he's completely trustworthy in all of his ways. He's got, he's got nothing tucked away in the darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. No, none at all. Do you believe that? Have you had the experience, whether it's here or, or in your own personal worship life, that you've noticed that in the presence of God, the light is so bright that you can't hide anything. And it's, it's really foolishness to attempt to do so, isn't it? I mean, who can go before the holy creator God, the Alpha, the Omega, the eternal creator of all the universe, what you can see and what you can't see, within time and outside of time, from beginning to end, who can go before him and say anything that's not... The truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It, it's really an impossibility. But we give it a good shot, don't we? We give it a good shot. John would say this, verse 6, if, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, then we lie and do not practice the truth. John is gentle in his writing, isn't he? I mean, he, he kind of makes it easy on us. No, he doesn't. He just called us liars. He just called us liars. If, if that's what we say, then he says, you're lying. But if we walk in the light, 
as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with him. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that. Isn't it interesting that it doesn't say that if we walk in the light because he is the light, we will have fellowship with him. It says it says something more than that. Certainly that part is true, but it, it says something even more. Notice what it says. We will have fellowship with one another. Interesting. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from how much of our sin? All sin. If we say that we have no sin, what about that? And we are not only liars, but he says we're deceiving ourselves. You think you're deceiving God? Well, we've already found out there's no hiding from God. There's nowhere to tuck anything away. Who's the only person that you might be able to deceive? It's yourself. That's, that's even more foolish, isn't it? Deceiving ourselves and the truth can't be found in us. But if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God as to who we are and who we are not, if we confess our sinfulness, if we make agreement with the Holy Spirit's valuation of us and everything else, black and white in this world, then what? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. He's righteous to fix our unrighteousness. And in case you didn't get it the first three times, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I want you to notice something here before we leave this passage and move on to another. I want you to notice starting in verse really five, but but you could even jump to verse six. Notice notice who he's talking to. In this letter, he's talking to us. We, as an extension of that first century church that was, that was established, the church that John was an elder at. I mean, this letter is written to Ephesus, probably. One of the churches we know the most about in the New Testament. But you understand that it extends down through time and eternity. It, it extends to you and I. I mean, when he says later in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, he's talking about us. Now, what I specifically want you to understand and take note of here is, is that every time he says we, he's talking about we as the little children of of the Father, of God. We are not in this letter the lost children of God. We are the ones who have been found. We're the ones who are in Christ. We're part of the flock. He's writing this, he's writing this to us. Why did he say he was writing it? At the end of the last section, chapter 1, verse 4, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. There's some there's some joy at the end of this section. Chapter two, verse one might be better understood as a as a last verse or a last phrase in the in the chapter one. Because then he'll say, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Uh, John, elder at Ephesus. He has he has a stake in, in this congregation, doesn't he? He wants his congregation to do well. John's getting old by this point. He's the last remaining apostle. They get a letter from him. And they're going to read it among them. And they want to hear what, what he has to say to them. And he says, listen kids. Children of God, hear me. God has told us and shown us that he is light. 
And that in Him there is no darkness. There is no hiding from Him. And He's hiding nothing from us. He's been completely truthful with us and forthright with us and just and righteous with us in order to gain our righteousness and to cover our unrighteousness. Now listen, children, why would you say anything other than what is the truth back to him who already knows all of the truth? You, tra- you tracking with me where John's going here? Maybe you've had consciously or subconsciously some of these statements floating around in your own heart and mind. You who are the children of God, the believers here. Remember, he's not writing this to the lost. Us. Maybe we've said we, we've got fellowship with, with the Father. But the Father's light and he, he's in the light. But I'm walking in darkness. Maybe, maybe we've said that we have no sin. Hmm. Maybe... Maybe we've made a valiant attempt to even deceive ourselves. I mean, maybe you'd say, Pastor, I'm not trying to lie to God, but maybe, uh, maybe I'm hiding some things from myself. Or maybe, maybe we need the straightforward verse 10 that says, if we say that we have no sin, church, remember who the we is. If we say we got no sin to be concerned about, it is, it is paramount to calling God himself a liar. Turn to Acts chapter 19. I want to show you a story from this church, a story from the church of Ephesus in Paul's day. Paul, who would go to Ephesus and establish, uh, in large part, the foundation of what this church would be that John would be an elder of and he would write his letters to. Acts chapter 19 tells an interesting story. Have you ever heard of the seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish chief priest? Ever heard that story? The, the, where we are in Acts 19 is that John, uh, not John, sorry, I, I've got to bounce back and forth here. Paul. It took me a long time preaching John to not say Paul because Paul wrote most of the New Testament and now I'm confusing myself. At this point in Acts, Paul has established himself. He, he's been... Uh, for all intents and purposes, he's been, he's been moving the kingdom at a rapid rate. Many people are being saved. Paul is a powerhouse for the kingdom of God. Lives are being changed. The kingdom's being expanded. Churches are being planted. Elders in those churches are being raised up. And he's moving on. And he's whooping and taking names. And he's just, he's just moving through. Acts 19, he's in Ephesus. And you get this story where it says that he's performing extraordinary miracles. Uh, his handkerchiefs and his apron even, they're taking it from him. And they're waving it around on people. Just touch his hanky, man. And you got, you got healing, right? Okay? And so the point is, is that, that Paul is doing some major stuff here. And the story goes is that the, the, the people who weren't yet in Christ, but, were, but were, were Jewish of nature, of faith, they're hearing about all this stuff and they're seeing all this stuff and they're, and they're getting kind of jealous. And you get these guys, these guys who were, it says, Jewish exorcists. And I don't know how you get that job in the nation of Israel, right? I don't remember seeing that in the Old Testament on how you apply for that job or how you get in line for that job. I don't know if you have to go to school. I don't know if there's some special training to be a Jewish exorcist, but they're there. Acts 19, verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted 
to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. And so what you have here is everybody's hearing about this tremendous work that Paul's doing, and they're taking even Paul's garments and going and healing people, and tremendous work is being done. And now the, the Jewish guys who are trying to cast out demons and evil spirits, the Jewish exorcists, whatever they were trying to do, they start hearing about this stuff. And so they start trying to use the same power that, that Paul's using, except for they don't have a connection to that power. And so here's what they do. They go into an evil spirit one day, and they say, listen, in the name of Jesus Christ... Paul's God. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I mean, who, who goes to cast out an evil spirit in the name of someone else's God? It's pretty entertaining, I think. I mean, uh, I'd like to see Hollywood make a movie of that, right? You know, uh, heads are spinning, pea soup's flying out, and you're trying to cast this thing out in the name of somebody else's God that you don't even believe in. And it gets even better. The story says that the demon stops and essentially looks over at these guys and says, uh, excuse me, I know the Jesus guy, yeah, and I know who Paul is. Who are you? It's in there, read it. Who are you? Uh, the, the story ends with these seven sons uh, getting beat down, whooped naked, and running. You ever heard the, the, the analogy, uh, you got your pants beat off of you? That's what happens to these guys. It comes from Acts chapter 19. That's where that comes from, right there. If there's ever any debate on whether or not you win or lose a fight, guys, if you leave without your pants, you lost. All right? No dude is going to willingly give up his pants. If you, if you leave the fight without your drawers, you've lost. And that's what happened to these guys. They get beat and they leave naked and bleeding. And then listen to what happens. This, verse 17, became known to all. You've got to ask yourself, what is this? Well, certainly this whole story, including Paul's power, the name he had been preaching in, the name he had been proclaiming the kingdom in. Certainly the, the seven sons of Sceva, these, these exorcists of some sort. Certainly this story is getting around. So this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, by the way, who lived in Ephesus. And watch this. A fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Verse 18. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. Now stop right there. If you write in your Bible, this is a good place to write in your Bible. I'm going to go back to the same question we asked in 1 John chapter 1. Who are we talking about here? Who are we talking about? Who are these people? Many also of those who were believers. People who have already believed this message that Paul has been preaching. After hearing all of these stories, after hearing about the seven sons getting whooped, it says they, they did something. Don't miss it. The believers did something. They kept coming. They kept coming. And they kept coming. And maybe that means in some part that, uh, that just one after another, they just kept coming. But I think it's also safe to assume that it also means that they individually kept coming. 
And what did they what did they do upon their arrival? They kept coming, confessing, and disclosing or divulging or uncovering all their practices. Who? The we, the me, the you in the story. Verse 19 says, And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. I'm I'm not into book burning per se, but this, this is happening here. And they counted up the price of them, all that was brought, and found it to total 50,000 pieces of silver. One piece of silver, or one drachma at this time, would, would be equal to a day's wage. Any, any like math geniuses in here that you could figure out how many, how many years it would be to add up to 50,000 work days? Craig, can you do that math in your head? No. About 136, I had to use a calculator and I prepared this ahead of time. I came up with about 136, but I've been known to even mess up on a calculator. So check me on that. 50,000 days wages, that's 136, give or take, years of work that they brought of their sin and laid it down and they burn it up. Let's get rid of it. Paul goes out in power. He's doing, he's doing kingdom work, these these charlatans come along and try and preach in the name of someone they don't even believe in and they get whooped by the demon that they're trying to cast out. Word spreads, everybody hears, and number one, believers kept coming. And in addition to that, other people who had sin in their life, maybe outside of the holy huddle on the peripheral who saw what the holy huddle was about, they brought their mess and they got rid of it. Verse 20, this has got to be the goal. This has got to be the goal for for Elder John in Ephesus, for Paul in Ephesus. It's got to be the goal for, for us here at Cornerstone. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. How did they get to verse 20? How do we get to verse 20? We get to verse 20 realizing that um, a requirement for growing mightily, an essential requirement for the word of God prevailing among us is that we recognize that we, by the power of God's story among us, need to keep coming with our junk. And we need to keep coming and keep coming one after another. And each of us, we need to keep coming and never stop this thing that we call in this holy huddle confession and repentance. Let me put it another way. Let me put it in John's words. We need to stop saying that we have no sin because that's not doing anyone any good. We need to stop saying that there is no sin among us. We need to stop saying that that we're with the light when we're walking in the darkness. We need to just fess up. We need to be honest. We need to be transparent. We need to be, we need to be the kind of church that says, this is my mess. And we need to pick up our mess and keep bringing it. And keep bringing it. Instead of, in complete foolishness, trying to 
tuck it into some shadow. Um, I, I've told you this now several times, and it's become apparent in, uh, in terms of current events in my life. I've told you that the, the most compliments or response that I get from messages is when I just come up here and I tell you about my junk. Yeah? I mean, you guys love it. You eat it up. I'm done. That was the greatest message ever, Pastor. You didn't say anything about my stuff. You talked all about yours. Uh, and, I, you know, I get it. I get it. I mean, it's something about us being honest with each other that is empowering, isn't it? I mean, for, for those of you who've been in church for a long time, how many of you uh, were in churches that um, the, the seeming intent of the church was to make everything look perfect? Whether it was your dress, your attitude, the smile on your face, uh, the, the behavior of your children, what was going on in your home, in your family, in your job. I mean, you felt that when you came to church, you put on your, your best. Right? You put on your Sunday best. And that doesn't just mean your suit. It doesn't just mean your, your clothing. It means is that you put on your Sunday best so that everybody can see that you're part of the perfection that is the church, this holy stained glass thing, right? But how many of you grew up in those churches kind of sitting back, trying to play that part, but all the while asking yourself, I don't really even know if I belong here because I, that's not me. I mean, I'm not. If I'm honest, I got sin. And, and, and there's darkness looming in my life in this area or that area. And, and, and you kind of wondered, I mean, I, I, was in that, I, I was in one of those churches where I kind of wondered, like, maybe I'm just, maybe I need to get out of here because maybe I'm just a fraud. Maybe I'm the fake. And then somebody gets up one day and they tell the story of how they're not perfect. And you say, well, well maybe I am. Maybe I am a Christian. And you felt empowered. You felt like relieved, like that not everybody's got all their stuff together. And what happened? It was very simple. People, people kept, kept coming and bringing their stuff. That is the intent. Not only of this church, it's been the intent of the church from the very beginning, is that we, we be transparent, we be, we be honest. I preached a sermon that's been several years ago now. And uh, some of you might remember, if you've been here a while, that um, the whole service, I wore a mask. I think it was an Iron Man mask. Anybody remember? Was it an Iron Man mask? Yeah, I wore an Iron Man mask. Stole it from my five-year-old, and I wore a plastic, silly Halloween Iron Man mask. Through, through all of worship, right? So I, don't, I, I didn't just put it on and come up here and start preaching in it, right? I wore it sitting there the whole time while everyone was singing, right? And... Um, it occurred to me as I was trying to breathe and my face is fogging up and those things are hot and, and you know, I'm sweating behind this thing. It occurred to me that maybe this was a bad idea. Like I was doing it for like this great illustration point, right, that we need to remove our masks and not come with our Sunday best and, and, and preaching that kind of message, right? But as I was doing that uh, through the music, through the worship and song, I, I remember from behind the mask thinking, well, maybe I'm taking this a little bit too far. 
I remember thinking, maybe I'm offending somebody. Maybe I'm offending the people up on stage as they're looking out at me in this stupid mask because what we're doing right now is a holy thing. What we're doing right now is we're coming into the very presence of God. We're collectively, as a congregation, bowing at the throne of God, confessing His glory and His, His grace and His righteousness and His holiness. And I've got this stupid Iron Man mask on. And I'm thinking somebody's going to be offended at this. I mean, illustrations can go too far. And then, and then it hit me. Well, no, that's, it's really the perfect illustration. Because week after week, we do that, don't we? We, we come in with our silly masks on, trying to hide something behind it, and we, we dare to sit in the very presence of God, sing songs of praise and glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords with our Silly masks on. You know, I was worried about offending you, and it occurred to me that we offend, we offend a holy and gracious God Sunday in and Sunday out. When we come in and, and, and we, we fake who we are, we're frauds. We put on our mask. We put on our makeup. Isn't it good, ladies, when you see these magazines or maybe on Facebook sometimes they come out with these Hollywood uh, pictures and you get, you know, you get uh, whoever the, the top Hollywood A-lister is at the time and uh, they have makeup on and you're like, wow, and they, you know, you hate them and then they have makeup off and like, wow, and you love them. Like, yes, <laughs> I knew there was a human under there, right? And when those come out, what, I mean, what do they do? They, they relieve us, don't they? I think what John's trying to do here in this section of 1 John chapter 1, in, in part, is, is something very small but something very important. He's saying, just, just stop it. Stop, stop the fraud. Stop the salesmanship. Stop wearing the mask. Take off the makeup. Listen, we got sin. We. We got sin. And God is ready to forgive it. There's an advocate at the right hand of the Father who will take up our case. Don't worry about that. Let's, let's, not, let's not make God a liar. Remember, there's no darkness to hide in. Everything is laid bare before Him. He knows it all anyway. It'd be foolishness to try and tuck it away and hide it. As a matter of fact, not only is it an offense to God, but it slights the body of Christ. I mean, it doesn't help any of us. This is why you say, Pastor, thank you for just telling your story. Thank you for telling us about your stuff. Church, if we're going to be the church that, uh, that the New Testament intends for us to be, if we're going to be a church that really makes a difference with the light that we're supposedly in, if we're going to take that light anywhere, then, then we have to be willing to tell the truth. And part of the truth is that, that you and I are, are, are messed up. Children of God, that's what he calls us, we come with a mess. I, I don't know about your house, but in my house with kids, it seems like I go from one room to another room cleaning up a mess, right? I get this room picked up and then I go to the next room and they've moved it to that room, right? And so I pick up that one and I say, hey, you guys go get that. And then I move to the next one and it's just this rotating mess, right? Amen? You got that? If you've got babies right now, I, they carry the mess around with them, right? The point is this, kids come with a mess. We expect it, don't we? 
Our job is to raise our kids, to grow them in their maturity, to remember that they they do come with a mess. I was talking to a buddy on the phone this past week. He's got a, an eight-year-old, and we were talking about just life and, and him trying to be intentional in his son's life. And he said something over the phone to me that I've thought many times. He said, you know, I have to remind myself every now and then that he's only eight. Because I'm, you know, I'm with him all the time, and he's, he's almost as tall as me now. My buddy's short. He says, I, I, I'm treating him like he's 13 or 16 sometimes, or like he should think like an adult thinks. And I have to tell myself he's only eight. And what that means is, is that you remember, oh, a kid's going to mess up. The kid's not going to make the best choices. What that means to us as children of God is this. Among us, where there are infants and toddlers, young boys and girls of the faith, and let's just face it, not many of us grown senior adults in the faith, there's going to be some messes around the house. Amen? I don't want to be a part of a church. I don't want to be a part of a church that just tries to sweep the mess under the rug as if there is no mess there, but everybody knows there's bumps and there's dirt under there. Not only do I not want to be a part of it, that's never been the intention of the kind of church that we intended to plant here. But even greater than that, don't you know and don't you remember from when you weren't part of the we but you were part of the them that they could they could care less for any kind of church that looks like that. They're not looking for the stained glass, everybody's pretty, everybody's perfect. They're looking, they're looking to know you've got some mess because guess what? They've got a big mess. Some of the best stories are here when you guys get honest with each other. A few months ago back at Men of Prayer, one of our men, a guy who in many of our men's mind is more respected, successful in business, uh, vigorant in his faith, very zealous in sharing the gospel. A lot of you men look up to him. He started to share just about some of his stuff, just start sharing about some of his own self-worth uh, issues and just some of his junk. And I could just see like heads in the circle kind of turning and looking at him like, not, not you, nah. But what I saw beyond that was that men left there empowered and encouraged. We need, we need to know. And we need to, not just from here, guys, be transparent in this church, but, but we need to be transparent here. If not, we're doing each other an injustice. Um, this week, um, and I think part of all the current events of our church have prompted a little bit of this. This week, I spent time with uh, several of our men and uh, in ways that uh, maybe they haven't in the past, uh, several men have just kind of opened up to me and just started, just started telling me stuff. Messy stuff. Had a guy sit in my office just yesterday talking about just, just how, uh, how, how he's struggling with his, with his wife in a way that he's never said it to me before. In clarity. I had a guy uh, two days ago Come and tell me, and I'm not going to name a name. If you think you know who it is, just keep it to yourself. Uh, come and tell me that at nighttime prayers, kneeling with their, uh, with their young child, uh, their, their young child used, used uh, a profanity just like it was a kindergarten sight word. 
in his prayer. And me being the holy, righteous pastor that I am, my first question to him was, well, did you just bust out laughing? That probably wasn't the right first question. Uh, He said, no, I had to get up and I had to go in the other room. It just so caught me off guard. But we kept talking and and, and I I pressed him on a little bit. I said, well, so how did you, did you talk to him about it? He said, well, not until my wife went in and and said prayers with them as well. And then they said the same thing. And she says, yeah, yeah, talk to him. (laughs) And so now a conversation happens. And I said, well, what did you say? And he said, well, I, I said, we don't use those words. I said, you said that. That's what you said. We don't use those words. Yeah, that's what I said. I said, well, what you meant, though, is you don't use those words. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I said, well, did did you go back to him at any point and and say, um, listen, man, it's not just you just don't use those words. We don't we don't use those words. And I'm sorry because you did. You heard that from me. And you thought it was a normal word and and you, you even prayed it to a holy God. And so I, 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 I'm sorry, we don't, we don't use those words. No, I hadn't done that. Okay, we could do that. And there was some pressing there, but it only came in, in being honest and sharing mess. And man, I, I was so thankful to have those conversations and more with other people to hear that they had a mess. Can, you, can I tell you to encourage your pastor? Uh, yesterday, VBS, uh, we're doing the slip and slide, last thing in the day. Uh, the only thing I asked of Jeff and Sherry is that no kids get hurt, right? Um, that there be no blood, that no kids did get hurt, and that's my point. Uh, only one person was injured, and he's right here. Um, and my own, my own son did it. My, my oldest son took me out, man. He just took me out on the slip and slide. I'm, I'm squirting baby lotion on the slip and slide, trying to send kids down, gently down the slide. And my oldest son runs up behind me and just just wails me, man. Just pushes me. I go flying, feet up in the air. I land on my neck and on my back. All the wind. <laughs> I'm not as sprite as I once was. I roll over and I could just hear people like, oh. <laughs> and someone shouted, it was your son. I think it was Tracy. <laughs> and... Uh, And I rolled over, and I, I think I remember just kind of crawling off the slip and slide, and I made my way off to the side. And uh, a few moments later, as only a brother can, my brother comes up to me and he says, laughing, he says, man, uh, good job, Pastor, not cursing in front of the kids. <laughs> and I think to myself, if I could have caught my breath, it might have happened. And then I think to myself, if I could have caught my son. <laughs> and uh, what occurs to me in that, in, that, in that comical moment, right? What occurs to me is, is to thank the Lord. I, I'm just telling you. As soon as my back hit the ground, I was mad. Like I had been wronged. And by my own flesh and blood. <laughs> and I wanted to retaliate. Uh, at a nine-year-old who was just trying to have fun and thought, I'm going to get dad. And in that split second, as I'm trying to catch my breath and roll off the uh, slip and slide so it can continue, um, 
my first instinct was to look back up the hill and, uh, and to just show my disgust to my son in just my face. I can tell you that there wasn't going to be a word that came out, but I just, my, my first instinct was to lock eyes with my son and just to show him my disgust. And by God's grace, I didn't look up. I just walked, I walked off. And uh, later somebody said, Grady just, he, he knew, you know, he knew that it hurt and he knew, ah, maybe that wasn't a, a great idea. And I just said to myself, thank you, Lord, for not letting me, for not letting me break down my, my son's heart with just a glance. But it, it's, my, it's part of my mess. It was there. And I, I, have no, I have no desire to tell you, Cornerstone Church, that this guy here has it all together. In fact, that would be a scheme of the devil for me to, for me to attempt to put on the mask for you to be perfect. Revelation 2, let me give you, let me give you something here that I think is worth taking note of. To the church at Ephesus, the writer, and really Jesus, who's, who's the prompting behind John here in Revelation chapter 2, the writer says this to the same church we've been talking about all morning. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So you've got to ask yourself, what is it that he's asking them to go back to? What is he asking them to return to? What are the deeds that you did at the first? If you search through your New Testament, the only thing you can really find that the church at Ephesus does at the first is, guess what? It's Acts 19. They kept coming, confessing their junk. The we didn't want to leave their first love. And if they wanted to continue to embrace their first love, guess what Revelation 2 says they have to do? You've got to go back and you've got to do the thing that you did back when you first were growing up in your faith. And what is that? It's being honest. It's not saying that there is no sin when there is sin. It's not saying that I'm in complete light when I'm walking around in darkness. It's not trying to portray yourself as something that you're not like strong when all along God is saying, just be weak so that I can show my strength and so that they can see my strength and not think that they have to stay on the outside because you've got it all together. No, confess that you don't have it all together. Remember that on the cross, Jesus outed us for our sinfulness and our need for a savior. And just let it be. For God's sake, let it be. For the sake of the body of Christ, let it be. And for the world's sake, let the truth be known, even if it's the ugly truth. Here's why this is important, because look at the next, look at the next phrase in Revelation chapter 2. Remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds which you did at the first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There's a lot at stake here, church. If we want to be the stained glass perfect church that looks perfect all the perfectly live long day, 
then we're going to give up something. We risk giving something up. Confession should mark our lives. It's not something that we do once and move on from. We need to have the attitude among us that we keep coming back. In an open and an honest way, we keep bringing our stuff. How else, according to Acts 19, verse 20, do we expect that the Word of God will prevail? Because the Word of God prevails, Acts 19, verse 20, in the context of us starting it off with continual confession. What the world needs to see, what awes the world, is not our hypocrisy-laden self-righteousness. It is our weakness that turns to strength of Christ and makes much of Jesus. Some of you remember Brian a few weeks ago talking about coming up with your own three-word story. Let me just put a let me just put a a thought in your mind that in your three-word story there should be something that connotates your mess. Your story your story has to include your mess. Without without confession there is no power. If we're going to try and hide our mess, we're forever going to be powerless. Power for God's word to prevail in our lives and in this church's life and in the world's life is for us to just be honest and let our sin be sin. My presence, my power, my work, I'm going to pull it from you if you don't get back to doing what you did at first. You notice that it's not anything uh, magnificent that he's asking us to do. It's not anything grand in ministry that he's asking us to do. It's no great work that he's asking us to do. What is he telling in Revelation 2, the church to get back to? It's, it's to get back to being honest about how weak we are. Can we do that? I think we can. I think we can. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful And He is righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Would you notice that phrase? It says His word is not in us. What was it in Acts 19 that was growing mightily and prevailing because of what was happening in that church? Remember what it said? It says that the word of the Lord was growing mightily. If we lie, then that word is not in us. Let's pray. Lord, there are men and women. There are couples. There are husbands. There are wives in this congregation that are, um, whether they know it or not, they've just been... They've been playing the shell game, trying to hide sin from you and from each other and from the body, from me. And it's the worst thing they could ever do. It's damaging them. It's damaging their family, their relationships. It's damaging their relationship with you and it damages their testimony. Might we all, Lord, have the attitude of the psalmist in Psalm 32 when he said, For day and night... Your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fervor and the fever heat of summer. 
When I kept silent about my sins, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Lord, tucking this stuff away is it's foolishness because you expose it all. And so, Lord, give us the courage. Give us the power. If need be, Lord, take us to the end of our rope. Cause us to wave the white flag and say, I give up. I'm a mess and I need help. I need the Lord and I need his people. I need grace. I need forgiveness. I need help. Lord, I pray that in the next few moments, the altar would be used. I pray the altar would be used by those who are in in the kingdom, those who are the children that John is crying out to. I pray that the altar would be used by the we in his, in his words. I pray that we would bring our stuff. That we'd start by bringing it to you and showing you what you already see. Confessing that you're right about us and you're right that sin is sin. And I pray we would be emboldened we'd find safety in this place so that we could bring our stuff not only to you, Lord, but to each other. For there's strength and power in confession. Lord, and just as in Acts 19, and when that is happening, I pray that the world would see and see the real deal. I'm not a fraud. And they'd see your glory and not us. We pray in Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.